Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, hello again, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I'm Shannon Riley. Thank you to my daughter, Bibi, who brought me into this episode. I'm really excited to be here today to talk about my favorite playwright, as always, William Shakespeare, the greatest man ever to pick up a pen. But as always, I always want to hear from you. So if you would like to shoot me an email, ask me a question, or... Give me a comment. Let me know what you like about the show or would like to see me focus on next. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. Love to hear from everybody out there about the show and about Shakespeare and any questions you might happen to have. And if you've been following at all any of these podcasts, and you know that right now I'm in the midst of going through Shakespeare's complete works one play at a time to talk about that particular play a little bit more in depth. And today, we're going to take you back to the year of 1595 or 96, and the writing of a play that became synonymous with William Shakespeare's name. It's, of course, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. Man, we're into a deep one now. This is one of the biggest ones ever. It was big for Shakespeare. And it's also one of the shows that is probably most people's introduction to the works of William Shakespeare. Most people, when they first encounter Shakespeare, it's through a high school or a junior high English class. And the play that they start out with is Romeo and Juliet. Well, why? Well, one, it's very accessible, the story is very fresh, the story is very strong, and it's able to capture your attention very quickly. It is also sublimely written. It is an amazing play. Almost everything in it is sheer poetry, and it is really powerful. But today, I'm going to talk more about the source material for William Shakespeare's play, where the play comes from, the words that are used in it, and why it became 
Such an amazing play to begin with. First of all, I always start with the quote of the week, and my boy Finn is going to bring us in. It's time for... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. But how can I possibly pick a quote? You go from a pair of star-crossed lovers that take their lives. That's, that's beautiful. It's from the prologue. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Act two, scene one. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Act two, scene one. There are so many unbelievable quotes from this play because it is incredibly poetic and incredibly beautiful. This is when Shakespeare was still a young playwright, still learning his craft. But keep in mind here, this play comes after Two Gentlemen of Verona. It comes after Comedy of Errors. And yet this play puts him on the map. He is recognized immediately after this play as the genius that he is. Shakespeare finds his voice in Romeo and Juliet, and everything written after Romeo and Juliet has that thumbprint. Now, as with all of his shows, he didn't write the original story of Romeo and Juliet. Matter of fact, there are only three titles that Shakespeare wrote that are actual, genuine, original stories. The Merry Wives of Windsor is one of them, Midsummer's Night Dream is one of them, and Love's Labor's Lost was an original play. Some people say The Tempest was too, although it, it, it draws a lot on original text material of, of another source, so we'll talk about that later. Anyway, this is an amazing play, Romeo and Juliet, and it really sets Shakespeare apart from his fellow playwrights. But where did it come from? All right, now, I'm going to guess that if you're listening to a podcast about Shakespeare, you know the synopsis of Romeo and Juliet. You probably know it quite well. So for this particular episode, I'm going to forego doing a synopsis. I think you know the story. I think you know the characters. If you don't, please go read it. You're going to be so much richer if you do. So go and read it and, and experience it. But I'm going to plow ahead as if we're all familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet. But where did it come from? What is its source material? First of all, a love story of forbidden love is old as time itself. You can go back very far and find a lot of different versions of forbidden love, young people falling in love who should not be together. One of the earliest ones, as a matter of fact, is Pyramus and Thisbe, which would have been in Ovid's Metamorphosis. And Shakespeare returns to the story of Pyramus and Thisbe when he's writing Midsummer's Night Dream, which is to come in a few years now. The story of two star-crossed lovers is not new. Neither is the story of Romeo and Juliet. Matter of fact, the Montagues and the Capulets are even mentioned in Dante's Divine Comedy. So the story itself is pretty old, but how Shakespeare knew it, well, we think we know what his main source was. The earliest known finding of Romeo and Juliet, the actual terms Romeo and Juliet, come from about 1485 with a long narrative poem called Juliette et Romeo. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. But it was a very old story by a writer by the name of Porta. And Porta wrote the story of two young loves who were uh, kept apart due to the alien and angered feelings of their families and the animosities their families had for each other. Porta introduces a lot of the main characters. He introduces Friar Lawrence even, as a matter of fact. He introduces Mercutio and Tybalt and even Count Paris. So all of these characters are introduced as, as early as 1485. But that's probably not the version that Shakespeare referred to. First of all, it was written in Italian. There's no evidence he could read Italian. Secondly, he would have had to rely on a much later adaptation of the story. And there just happens to be a prime example right there in England. In 1562, 
a narrative poem called The Tragical History of Romulus and Juliet, was written by Arthur Brooks. It was a faithful adaptation of an earlier Italian poem, and Brooks had translated Italian into English poetry. Now, this is 1562. Shakespeare's born in 1564, but the book was immensely popular, and it stayed around for a long time. However, there's a big difference between the source material, Romulus and Juliet, and the play that Shakespeare writes. Romulus and Juliet was meant as a cautionary tale. It was to express to young people their need to listen to their family, to listen to their government, to listen to their society, and not to behave inappropriately. Keep in mind, arranged marriages were a common thing in not only Italian culture, but also the Elizabethan culture. And so an arranged marriage was not unheard of. But it was a problem when young kids started to pick their own marriages, and sometimes those unions did not turn out very well. Well, this poem by Arthur Brooks was really set aside to blame the children for their horrible circumstances, and it was their fault that such ruin came to them. It was... A lesson of how you should listen to your parents behave appropriately when it came to matters of the heart. In fact, Romeo does not die of poison in the original story. In fact, he returns to Verona, where he was not supposed to be, is arrested by the prince, and beheaded. Juliet herself then commits suicide after the death of Romeo. So, it's a slightly different story altogether connected with this Romeo and Juliet, or Romulus and Juliet, I should say. But Shakespeare is very clear when he takes Romeo and Juliet on to really add some amazing detail. He adds a lot of detail to Mercutio, to the nurse. Keep in mind, this is just a narrative poem. It was much shorter. Shakespeare was writing a whole five-act play. So he really spells these characters out and cleans up who they are. Like the narrative poem and like the original story itself, we never find out what the great ancient grudge was between the Montagues and the Capulets. It's never discussed. It's not important. Matter of fact, if it was discussed, it would probably lessen the story. The story is not about the conflict, but about what happens to the star-crossed lovers as they come together due to the conflict. But as much as Arthur Brooks wanted this to be a lesson to children, Shakespeare treats it quite differently. And he makes it into the most miraculous story of love and conquering all that ends in a very tragic way. But instead of feeling like they had it coming, we feel for the young lovers. We are concerned for them. We don't want it to end this way, and it breaks our heart. It is tremendous how he turned this story around. Now, it was very popular in Shakespeare's time. Matter of fact, it was published in quarter form not once, but twice. The first quarter publication happened around 1597, early in 1597. This is called the Bad Quarto. It probably was put together off of Shakespeare's foul papers. Those That means the, the papers he was had in front of him as he was writing Romeo and Juliet that would have had scratches, uh, marked out lines. Uh, characters would start dialogue and then abandon the dialogue because Shakespeare went in a different direction. And often the typesetter didn't know whether or not to include certain pieces in or not. Names could be wrong. It's kind of a mess. So it was then reworked and republished as late as 1599. Now, as I've said before, you didn't run out and publish your plays because you want to maintain them. You want to hold on to them. Yet they published Romeo and Juliet. Why would they do that when it was such a successful play? Money. 
it was a, a successful play. They probably ran it for years and people wanted it, wanted to see it and wanted to get the money, but the audiences were probably slowly drifting away. So they decided let's make as much money off it as we can and release the first quarto, which is called the bad quarto. Then later, Shakespeare goes back, he cleans it up, he rewrites things, he straightens things out. Matter of fact, between the quarto number one and quarto number two, there are 800 more lines. Other lines are taken out entirely. So it's a very much a cleaned up version of Romeo and Juliet. It's the version we know today. As a matter of fact, the quarto two was the one that was used for any subsequent printing of the folios after it. So this seems to be the definitive version of what Shakespeare intended the show to be. This brings up the point of how these plays are written and even produced. Shakespeare's company could have taken one of Shakespeare's plays and worked with it for years, kind of workshopped it, kind of added, I like this bit, I don't like that bit, changing characters, changing things around so that it eventually evolved into the play that they wanted it to be. They might have even done it in front of multiple audiences in multiple ways just to find the perfect version that they wanted to do. And then once they had that, they ran it and ran it and ran it. Shakespeare's company did about 24 to 26 different plays a year, a year. And that's that's in between being shut down by plague or cold weather. So 26 plays and of those 26 plays, 24 to 26, 12 of them were original. But once you learn a play, you kept it in your repertoire for as long as you possibly could. It's a lot of work. And so you kept it there and kept it there until you finally decided we made as much money as we're going to make off of it in live. Let's publish this and take as much money as we can from the publishing. And they did. Twice. So this was an amazing play and very successful at its time. But it was not at all what the source material meant it to be. Shakespeare changed it a lot. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to talk about what these changes were. Because some of them are absolutely brilliant. And why... This set Shakespeare on his path to become the playwright that we celebrate and know today. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. This is Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and I will be back after this short break to talk more about the brilliance of Romeo and Juliet. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley here talking to you about Shakespeare's tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. It's funny, when it was uh, published in uh, Court of Foam, it was called The Most Excellent and Lamentable Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. The Elizabethan liked long titles. Uh, Jaws wouldn't have gone over very well there. I have a history with Romeo and Juliet that I want to share before I go in a little bit to describe some of the words and language used uh, by Shakespeare here that is, is truly remarkable. First of all, I have always been a lover of, of Shakespeare since I was a, a teenager. But when I was in graduate school, I had to get an internship to finish my master's degree. And I had the good fortune of landing an internship with the Acting Company of New York. The Acting Company of New York is the largest turning Shakespeare company in the country. At least it was at that time. It had launched the careers of such people as Meryl Streep, 
Robin Williams, Kevin Klein, and a bunch of others. So this was an amazing coup for me to be able to go and work with the acting company. In addition to that, the show that they were doing happened to be Romeo and Juliet. And I got to watch this show being created from the very beginning with an English director they brought in from Britain for it. I was assisting him. He didn't really need my assistance for much of anything. I was just a young college kid. But I got to work with all of these graduate students from Juilliard who were working on this show with me. One of them, as a matter of fact, uh, grew up to be Rain Wilson, who plays Dwight on The Office. I got to work with him. He played Peter in Romeo and Juliet. We became pretty good friends. I really, really enjoyed working with him and all of the people who were on that show. So Romeo and Juliet is very special to me. Plus the fact that when I did become artistic director of the Topeka Civic Theater, Romeo and Juliet was the first show, main stage show of Shakespeare that I did. And it returned Shakespeare to the stage at TCT for the first time since the 50s. It was very well received. It was a beautiful production. I'm very proud of it. And I grew to love and be enamored of this play even more. So when I start thinking about Romeo and Juliet, there are so many different themes that come to my mind. And that's what I want to talk about next. The first theme I want to talk about is fate. What happened to Romeo and Juliet was either their own action that caused the eventual demise of both of them or fate. Shakespeare calls them two star-crossed lovers, suggesting even from the very beginning that they are fated to be together. Romeo says of himself when he learns of Juliet's death while he's uh, in hiding in Mantua, says, I am fortune's fool. So he puts himself out there as being the victim of some great game the gods are playing with this poor mortal. This idea of fate and people being fated becomes very important. Even the prologue, they say the fatal end of Romeo and Juliet and fatal meaning final death, but also fate filled is present in the play. By the way, think about that prologue for a second. Two households both alike in dignity in Fair Verona where we lay our scene. That prologue is amazing, not only because it's really great iambic pentameter poetry, but it also, how many plays do you know of that start with, by the end of this play, these two people will be dead? You don't encounter that very often. Shakespeare does this because he knows everybody knows the story of Romeo and Juliet. He doesn't have to slowly discover anything to them, but what he does instead was get them to look at Romeo and Juliet in a brand new way. This is the genius of Shakespeare, that even though he would take on stories that people already knew, such as Macbeth, such as Hamlet, by the time he was done with them, well, they were his. Nobody wanted anybody else's version. Nobody cared. Romeo and Juliet was Shakespeare's, and that was the version people wanted. That was his brilliance. So this question of fate really takes center stage with Romeo and Juliet. Juliet is fated to be married to Paris, or so her father tells her. It has been decided. And I mentioned arranged marriages. Family is the next theme that I want to touch beyond fate. Family is very tight in this show. In this play, when you're a member of a family, you're a member of a bigger organism. You are part of everybody. There is safety in that. There is brotherhood in that. There is comfort in that family. But when that family is diametrically opposed to another family, then you also lack safety. You also lose some security. And these families, 
become that coral unit that make everybody stay together, stay tied to a fateful ending. Family and fate are the two things that drive Romeo and Juliet to their inevitable conclusion. And it's even referred to as inevitable in the play. The other thing that I think is very fascinating is how much everybody says it's such a love story. And I'm not taking that away. It is a love story. Matter of fact, the word love appears, I believe, 91 times, over 90 times in Romeo and Juliet. Love appears in this play more than in any other play of Shakespeare's except for Two Gentlemen of Verona, which use love even more. But it's this juxtaposition of love and hate that becomes very interesting too because hate is another theme in the play although hate is quickly abandoned and now let me explain that the word hate appears only about 15 times maybe 14 times in the entire play and most of them are in acts one and two hate does not appear until the very end of the play again when the princess prince condemns the families for their hatred that caused the death of these children this juxtaposition isn't about between love and hate it's about another word that's in there over 80 times and that word is death death is everywhere in romeo and juliet and it's tied to the fate they are fated to death Love is fated to be with death. When Juliet finds out that Romeo has been sent away to Mantua, and if he returns to Verona, he will be killed by the prince, she says, I will go to bed, and death will be my husband, and death will take my maidenhead. There is a strong sense of death ever present in the entire play. And this means love is not juxtaposed against hate, but instead is companioned with death. Love and death walk hand in hand in this play. When Juliet is discovered dead in her bed, turns out it's just a drug, by the way, but she's discovered dead in her bed by her father, and Paris comes in, even her father says, death has laid with your bride and taken her virginity. Juliet's virginity is a very big issue in this play. Her father refers to it, her mother refers to it, and she loses her virginity off stage to Romeo. And the reason why this is very important too is the next thing that Shakespeare does to this story that I think is fascinating. One, he speeds it up. The original story had Romeo going by Juliet's balcony day after day hoping to see her. But in Shakespeare, Romeo jumps a wall to get away from a cruise show who's making fun of him for being in love with Juliet and doesn't realize he landed in Juliet's garden and she's on the balcony and he overhears her speaking. He speeds everything up. They meet on a Friday night at a party. By the way, Romeo was already madly in love with another Capulet woman at the top of the play by the name of Rosalind, but she wants nothing to do with him. Suddenly he sees Juliet and there's no such person as Rosalind anymore as far as Romeo's concerned. So they meet on a Friday night. They're married by Saturday night. And they're dead by Sunday night. That's how fast Shakespeare speeds this story up. And why that's brilliant is another reason why he made another change. He reduced their ages. Juliet in the original story of Romeo and Juliet is 16. Romeo is 17. Shakespeare makes Romeo 16. And Juliet is 13. 13. 13. 
13. I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I don't want her running off to get married to anybody, but she's 13. As a matter of fact, her father even thinks she's too young to marry. When Paris first comes to her and asks for her hand, he says, let's wait two summers so that she can continue to ripen. And this response by the father, by the way, he often refers to Juliet as a flower, a plant, a produce, a product, a product that he owns. And when Juliet refuses to marry Paris, he speeds it up and says, oh, yes, you will. As a matter of fact, you're going to marry him this Thursday. He forgets about his promise to wait two years and tells Paris, we're marrying right now, this 13-year-old girl. So why? Why does Shakespeare speed it up into just one weekend? And why does he make Juliet only a 13-year-old girl? Well, go back to the original source material and you'll see that it was meant as a cautionary tale. Shakespeare doesn't want that this time. He wants our lovers to be seen as young, innocent, impetuous. Romeo, a 16-year-old boy who dreams of a girl at the start of the play, no longer cares about her once he sees Juliet. And then two people falling madly in love, needing each other, can't live without each other, to the point that it drives into the fatality that it is on the end of the play. That's impetuous youth. That's young. That's teenage. And that's innocent. And that's what Shakespeare wants us to see. That's what Shakespeare wants us to think of these two lovers. Romeo and Juliet are innocent. And they are fated to their demise. (laughs) That's why he does it. And it's brilliant. On a side note, Shakespeare had a daughter who married against his wishes. And he never forgave her for it. Matter of fact, she had a child that she named Shakespeare, hoping to get back in his good graces. It didn't work. And the poor infant did die, tragically, very early in its life. But this idea that a father possessed every one in his household was a very Elizabethan feeling, too. It was ingrained in their culture. So Juliet refusing to marry Paris is not acceptable. I'm going off on a tangent again here, but I want to talk to you for a second about Paris. Paris is a good guy. You talk about somebody in Shakespeare who gets a raw deal. Paris gets a raw deal here. He loves Juliet. He truly cares about Juliet. He didn't do anything to cause all this fuss. And as a matter of fact, the only reason he dies is because he goes back to her tomb so he can look at her one more time and runs into Romeo, who kills him. Poor Paris. Paris gets a raw deal here. Anyway, so fate and family are two big themes. Death is a very big theme that's in the play, as I've said before. And so is love. But there's another thing that I want to talk about that Romeo and Juliet also brings to the forefront of Shakespeare and his life. Almost all of Shakespeare's plays are set outside of London. They're in other countries. Aside from his histories and Merry Wives of Windsor, they all are somewhere else. Why does he do this? Well, one, it was the Renaissance and everything Italian was pretty popular in England. But other playwrights were writing plays that were taking place in England and London. Shakespeare's very smart. He sees playwrights being arrested or works being pulled away because they threaten the crown. Or they said something about society that the censors didn't like. By moving his plays to other countries, he can criticize anything. He can criticize their morals. He can criticize their society, their laws, even the royal family. Even if it's a veiled attempt at swiping at the current king or queen of England, he can get away with it because he put it somewhere else. 
He put the mad king off in Scotland. He put the vicious evil queen off in Verona. So by being able to do this, he's able to keep himself free from harm and free from censors. The other really great thing about putting it in Italy, in Verona, was he could have Friar Lawrence. And Friar Lawrence can do bad things. And he is a not a smart guy. He marries these two teenagers behind the back of their parents as if nothing's going to come bad of that. He even says these violent delights have violent ends. He knows this isn't going to end well. And he gives this potion to a 13-year-old girl to fake death. And then he says, I'll send a message to Romeo so he knows that this is all a fake. But the message never gets through. The monk he gives it to to send it gets held up in a house due to plague and he's not allowed to leave. So, Romeo never gets the message that it's a fake. He thinks Juliet's really dead and he comes back to Verona to end his life with poison. But then I want to talk about the final thing that I want to touch on real quickly in this won't take long, but it's it's religion. And religion was playing a big part in Shakespeare's life and in the Elizabethan world. Religion had gone back and forth between Catholic and Protestant a number of times. It had caused deaths. It had caused great breaks in families. Many people have been arrested and tortured on both sides. Religion was a huge moment. And what we have here at the end of Romeo and Juliet is a religious ending. You have Romeo committing suicide by drinking the poison. Poor Juliet waking up and finding him dead, trying to kiss his lips, hoping some poison still rests there, and it doesn't. So she has to stab herself with his dagger. But when the family comes upon them, and they find these dead children, the prince says, your hate, your animosity towards each other has caused this. And these children have paid the price for your sins. They have died for your sins. The prince even says they're going to put up statues for Romeo and Juliet so that we never forget the messages here. This is a Christian motif and a Christian ending. I'm not saying it's Catholic. I'm not saying it's Protestant. But it is Christian. It's a Christian motif. And it's one of the themes that Shakespeare barely ever touches on. And yet, he uses it here. If you have not seen Romeo and Juliet for a while, please go watch it. Go watch it. It's amazing. The story, the language, the poetry. You'll be better off for yourself if you do. I want to thank you all for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, and I'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep it barred to the bone. <laughs> 785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in.